Yasas. Welcome to Greek Like Me, the podcast about all things Greek for Greeks, Hellenophiles, and anybody who's interested in learning about other cultures. I'm your host, Pamela Deodes Wood. Email us at stealthgreek at gmail.com to share comments, questions, and stories about Greeks, Greekness, or your own ethnic background. We missed you last week. The Halloween episode that was supposed to drop on October 19th will be dropping next week. We'll be talking about vampires. From the history of the ancient Empusa of Greek mythology, the Galudis and Namias of early Byzantine times, and the modern Greek vampires, the Bricolakes. But today's episode is about a pivotal day in history, so important to Greek culture and history, it's been celebrated every year since 1942. October 28, 1940, was the day Greece took a stand against a powerful fascist army and put a crimp in Hitler's grand plan for world domination. That day, and in the weeks and months that followed, Greece inspired a war-ravaged Europe and diverted and delayed the Italian and German armies long enough to impact the course of World War II. Epetios du Ochi, the anniversary of No, or Ochi Day, is a national holiday in Greece, recognized and celebrated by Greek communities throughout the world. The photograph of the World War II fighter on our announcement post on social media and the sources page of our website is my uncle, my mother's first cousin, Athanasios Kletsikas. Theothanasi never spoke about what happened to him during the war, and we were too young to think to ask questions. But we know from the accounts of family members who lived then in our ancestral mountain village of Karpenisi that he fought the Axis powers as a guerrilla fighter for the duration of the war in the Pindus Mountains. This episode is dedicated to Theothanasi, a sweet, kind man who fought like a demon, and the men and women like him who inspired the world in their battle for Greece. Zito Yelas, long live Greece. We're told from the time we're children and reminded every year as Greek school girls put on traditional dress and the boys are outfitted as Evzones, that during the Second World War when the Italian Nationalist Army, the ally of Hitler, demanded the right to enter Greek territory for the cause of Axis world domination, the Greek government said, Ohi, no. That a tiny, impoverished country still recovering from the effects of the Ottoman occupation and multiple devastating wars with only outdated weaponry and a politically divided citizenry would stand up to the immense and well-equipped Italian army was amazing in and of itself. But as we studied what happened before October 28th, we realize there is even more reason to be impressed. Benito Mussolini had come to power through Italy's National Fascist Party. He was elected prime minister in 1922, but by 1925 he'd seized complete power and became dictator for life. He envisioned a new Roman Empire that encompassed a big chunk of the world. He started with the brutal conquest of Ethiopia in 1935. The other colonizer nations were horrified by the violence, especially because Ethiopia was a member of the League of Nations, and so was Italy. But Western Europe was not horrified enough to do anything about it. it sounds too familiar. His victory in Ethiopia only whetted Mussolini's appetite for land grabs. And Mussolini's new fascist best buddy, Hitler, encouraged him. And maybe got a glimpse for himself of how resistant the European powers would be to confronting military aggressions in the future. From 1936 to 1939, Mussolini sent arms, volunteers, 
and occasionally the Italian Navy to help fascist General Francisco Franco win the Spanish Civil War. Greece was looking increasingly like an easy target and one that would gain a base for the further conquest of North Africa and against the British when they inevitably tried to intervene. Greece between 1923 and 1935 was still struggling to recover from the Great Catastrophe. Between 500,000 and 700,000 Greeks in Asia Minor were annihilated during ethnic purges committed by Kemalist Turks. 1.5 million ethnic Greek refugees from Asia Minor flooded into Greece, which had a population of just over 5 million. Greece scrambled to assimilate, house, and feed what equaled nearly a quarter of its pre-1922 population. The country was in turmoil as monarchists, republicans, communists, and nationalists battled it out, making it impossible for a cohesive government to move forward. In 1936, former General Ioannis Metaxas was appointed prime minister by King George II of Greece, and with his blessing created a dictatorship that crushed political opposition. Metaxas was a monarchist, a fascist, and an admirer of Hitler. Unlike Hitler, he didn't assassinate his political enemies. He exiled them. Metaxas instituted social reforms helpful to the country, but nobody was crazy about a fascist dictator who had quashed any hopes of democracy. He wanted to modernize the Greek military, which makes absolute sense considering what was going on in the world. But it wasn't possible to begin to approach this problem, even in small measures, until around 1938. That year, Hitler and his Nazis had annexed Austria and parts of Czechoslovakia. In late August 1939, Germany and Russia signed a non-aggression pact. By September 1st, Germany invaded Poland. Britain and France declared war against Germany two days later on September 3rd. Poland fell in 35 days. Meanwhile, Italy had troops in the Middle East planning to take Libya and Egypt. This was the chaos swirling around Greece in 1939. Greece was strategically placed. She had ports that would make it easier for the Axis powers to send troops to Africa. And northeastern Greece would be the perfect route for marching on Russia once Hitler was ready to break the pact with the USSR and complete his plan for world domination. Japan would be joining the Axis powers in September of 1940, but they don't come into our story today. Back to 1939. A number of Balkan countries were either Axis sympathizers or neutrals during 1939. Greece had declared its neutrality. Mussolini considered the Balkans his territory, eventually to be added to his empire. So he was miffed when Hitler moved into Romania for the rich oil fields to fuel his military. Romania was economically dependent on Germany, so no fighting there. Just provide the resources. Bulgaria was ready to join the team. Hitler was getting all of the wins in this war, and Mussolini, Il Duce, was feeling a little left out. His successes in Ethiopia and in the Spanish Civil War were now behind him, and he still had delusions about this new Roman Empire. Mussolini wanted Greece and her strategic ports. Hitler was aware of Metaxas's fascist leanings, that he was kind of a Hitler fanboy from way back, and he hoped to persuade Greece to come under the Axis umbrella through diplomacy. Maybe the carrot-and-stick method. The Balkans was already known as a powder keg. Hitler's goal was to keep things calm until he finished with France and Britain and got a leg in on North Africa. He placated Il Duce, telling him he'd get his share of the Balkans and Greece, but he had to be patient. Patience was not one of Mussolini's virtues. 
Albania had already been under Italian influence since 1927. But in April of 1939, just to make it formal, Italy invaded. In just five days, Albania was completely under Italian control. King Zog went into exile in neighboring Greece, and the Albanian crown was offered to King Victor Emmanuel III of Italy. In return, Mussolini promised Albania, quote, an extension of the existing Albanian frontiers, meaning he would give Albania a nice chunk of northern Greece for their troubles. In the spring of 1940, Denmark and Norway fell to the Nazis. By June, with Europe and Africa looking ripe for the pickings, Italy officially joined the war on the side of Nazi Germany. Mussolini was raring to join Hitler in attacking France, but shortly after his government declared war on France and Britain, France had already fallen to Germany. The Battle of Britain was weeks away, and Britain was now the only European power facing Germany and Italy. Metaxas and the Greek government were under no illusions about Mussolini's intentions. Even though Alduce made a big deal about touting around the friendship between Italy and Greece, Greece had nothing to fear from her dear friend in Italy. But his troops in Albania were building airfields, naval bases, military depots, and roads leading right up to the Greek border. The Gulf of Soliniki wasn't far from eastern Albania, and Italian troops had already started moving in that direction. Greek diplomats in Albania had been reporting for months that Italian troops were moving towards the Greek border in multiple areas. But like a bad actor from a cheap soap opera, Mussolini kept sending assurances to Greece of the mutual respect and friendship between the two countries as late as September. Yet going back to June, three months earlier, when Italy declared war against Britain and France, a propaganda campaign against Greece had already begun. Ducci was a nutty guy, and he was kind of all over the place. We're your friends, I attack, we're your friends, I attack. Stephen Lavra witnessed events as they unfolded in Greece and wrote about it in his 1942 book, The Greek Miracle, under the pseudonym Atticus or Athenian, depending on who you ask. According to Lavra, two days before declaring war on the Allies, so June 8th, the Italian minister of propaganda handed the Greek ambassador to Rome a copy of a fact sheet he'd given to the fascist press in Italy. Lavra quotes, one, in Greece, the government, which are the servants of Freemasonry, I thought that was interesting, are on the side of the Western powers, whereas the people, above all the youth of Greece, are on the side of the Axis. Two, since Turkey and the Allies intend to occupy the Greek islands and the land of Salonika, Italy will find herself obliged to defend Greece. Hmm. Three, public opinion in Greece, despite Anglo-French pressure, wishes for Italian protection. Hmm. Four days later, on June 12th, three Italian bombers attacked a Greek Coast Guard ship, the Orion, which was unloading supplies at a lighthouse in Crete. When the Greek Navy ship Hydra came in in response to the Coast Guard's call for help, she was also attacked. Greece protested. Rome's response, crickets. Then, according to Lavra, in late June, Radio Rome in a broadcast to Greece stated that, quote, Greece was already in the Axis family circle. We are friends, we attack. We are friends, we attack. On July 3, 1940, Count Galizio Chiano, Italy's foreign minister and Mussolini's son-in-law, accused Greece of allowing the British to use their airports and dock their ships in Greek ports. 
He claimed British submarines and planes stationed in Greece were attacking Italian ships. Of course, there were no British planes, ships, or subs in Greece, which Metaxas told the Italian government, emphasizing Greece's neutral position. The RAF had attacked a couple of Italian ships 40 miles off the coast of the Ionian Islands. I'm thinking they were most likely stationed in Malta, which is between Sicily and the North African coast. The RAF had an airfield there at the time, and I'm sure Italy knew about it. On July 30th, Italian bombers attacked the Greek ships, the King George and the Queen Olga, at Nafpaktos in western Greece. The recovered shrapnel proved to be Italian, but Metaxas' administration were afraid to confront Italy. They knew Mussolini was looking for any excuse to declare war on Greece. Next, the Italian Air Force began violating Greek airspace over Epirus and Crete. Metaxas protested, but his complaints were ignored. Now it was time to rile up the Albanian people, who were already not too fond of the Greeks. And, to be honest, the feeling was mutual. On August 10th, an Albanian nationalist, a notorious bandit who raided over the Greek border and was wanted for murder there, was found decapitated just over the Greek side of the border. The Italian news agency was instructed to make a big deal out of it, accusing the Greek government of the murder of an Albanian national. Why the Greek government, who had a warrant out for this guy, would cut off his head and dump him at the border? Nobody knows. On August 14th, Italian Minister of Propaganda Virginio Gaeta accused Greece of anti-Italian policy, which was just confusing. Meanwhile, 104,000 Italian troops were massing in Albania. Then the greatest insult and instigation calculated to enrage the Greek people came the next day, on August 15, 1940, a major feast day of the Orthodox Church, the Dormition of the Theotokos, what we also call the falling asleep of the Mother of God. Every year on this date, for over 100 years, Greeks had traveled to the island of Tinos, one of the Kikladis Islands east of mainland Greece, to the Holy Church of the Panagia Evangelistria, the mother base uh, of the Mother of God in Greece. The church is a very holy place, a place of pilgrimage for Orthodox Christians. George Vlitas, in his book, The First Victory, Greece in the Second World War, compares it to the Catholic holy site Lourdes. A Greek Navy ship was anchored off of Tinos. The crew of the Eli was there to represent the armed forces in the celebration of the Dormition of the Theotokos. They were there in ceremonial dress uniforms, some of them had been chosen to carry the sacred icon of the Theotokos in the procession to the church. This was a very big deal. This was a great honor for these men. The icon had been found buried in a field after a nun had dreams about it, hundreds of years after it was lost. The church and the icon were part of the story of the Greek Revolution. This is beyond sacred to the Greek people. At 8.30 in the morning, as crew members were preparing to disembark the Eli for the church service, an Italian sub fired three torpedoes at it, striking it once near the boiler room. The other two torpedoes hit near the port. One sailor on board was killed outright. Four working in the boiler room were never found. Twenty-six more were injured, some severely. The Eli sank one hour and fifty minutes later. There was still no declaration of aggression from Italy other than her actions. 
Two Greek destroyers were sent out to rescue sailors from the sea and escort back passenger ships that had brought pilgrims from the port of Piraeus on mainland Greece. The Greek government informed the Italian government that the warships were being sent out for a rescue mission, for fear they'd be accused of aggression towards the Italians and attacked in Greek waters. Nothing was beyond Il Duce, really. Italy didn't attack the destroyers, but according to Blitas, they were harassed by Italian warplanes as they headed across the Aegean to Piraeus. All of Greece knew who did it. There was incredible outrage. Blitas writes that even though Metaxas still didn't dare call out the Italians, to the Greeks, quote, the absolute assurance that the Theotokos wouldn't allow such an act to go unpunished did more to steal the Greek spirit against Italy than any patriotic speech by Metaxas or the king. Mussolini was goading the Greeks, trying to cow and intimidate them. He didn't realize he was just pissing them off. Pissed off Greeks will come together against a common enemy like nobody's business. It was one of the first major miscalculations he made. Analysis, of course, proved the torpedo fragments to be Italian. Today, Blita says those fragments are in a small chapel under the Church of the Panagia, next to a slab of marble from Tinos that bears the names of the sailors who were killed that day on the Eli. The Italian government finally took responsibility for the destruction of the ship and the death of those sailors in 1960. They blamed the captain of the submarine, saying he'd gone rogue. Fortunately, the captain was still alive in 1960 and was able to prove he'd had orders to attack. In August of 1940, Hitler was like, What's up with Egypt, Benito? Mussolini had been distracted by Albanian preparations and his cat-and-mouse game with Greece and had delayed his planned march on Egypt. On September 12th, Italy's attack on Egypt began. This was Hitler's ploy to force Britain to send troops to intervene and distract them from Hitler's planned invasion of Britain, a plan that would wind up being postponed as Hitler considered turning on Russia. When the Brits in Egypt retreated, on September 20th, Il Duce ordered 40,000 Italian troops to Albania, bringing the total number of Italian troops near the Greek border to 144,000. Even though during September and early October, Italian forces were advancing on other African targets, Hitler wanted possession of the Suez Canal to prevent British forces from having access to it. But then on October 4th, Hitler for the first time sent German troops into the Balkans. Mussolini's territory, specifically into Romania. Romania was no longer just a Hitler helpmate. She was occupied. Mussolini was furious. He hadn't been told until it was a done deal. He complained to his son-in-law about Hitler, saying, quote, He will find out from the newspapers that I have occupied Greece. In this way, equilibrium will be reestablished. Il Duce was determined to be seen as Hitler's equal. The original Italian plan to invade Greece, unbeknownst to Hitler, had been set for September, then postponed to early October. Albanians were going to join the Italian troops in the attack. Mussolini had promised the Albanians Ipirus. He had a three-stage plan for the invasion of Greece, to seize Ipirus and the Ionian Islands, to occupy western Macedonia, the northeastern region of Greece, not the Slavic country. After this, Athens would be taken. Mussolini bragged that his troops would march at dawn at the border of Albania and he'd be enjoying coffee in Athens by noon. The actual estimate for victory and full occupation was 10 to 15 days. 
Mussolini was a man lacking in subtlety. To Metaxas and his government, to his generals and his diplomats, it was obvious that eventually Alducci would attack. Greek preparations for defense had begun quietly in early 1939. They didn't want Mussolini to guess they were expecting him. The Greeks were much better at hiding their hand. Mussolini had no idea. Of course, Il Duce figured he didn't have much to worry about. Italy had tanks, a modern air force, up-to-date weapons, rifles, machine guns, mortars, so on. The Greeks had no tanks. Most of their planes dated from the First World War, as did many of their rifles. They didn't have a lot of ammo. France had been much better equipped and had fallen within six weeks after Germany invaded. By August 1940, Greece had laid nets in its ports to act as blockades. They tightened airport security and called back men who had finished their military duty. They began quietly sending men into the Pindus Mountains toward the border. It was a waiting game. On October 26, 1940, Italian ambassador to Greece, Count Emmanuel Grazzi, hosted a gala at his embassy celebrating a performance of Puccini's Madame Butterfly at the Royal Theater of Greece. Puccini and his wife would be honored guests, along with diplomats of both neutral and Axis countries. Prime Minister Metaxas and his cabinet were invited, but Metaxas didn't attend. He sent a couple members of his government. The reception room was decorated with Greek and Italian flags. A large cake had been prepared with a message written across it in frosting. It said, Viva la Grecia. Grazi had to excuse himself several times during the reception when he was called to his office. It seems he had to decode a telegram from Rome. Less than two days later, on October 28th at 3 o'clock in the morning, a military attaché drove Ambassador Grazi to Metaxas's house. There was a bit of a mix-up when the ambassador said he needed to see the prime minister urgently, and the guard at the gate reported to Metaxas that the French ambassador needed to see him at once. I guess in the dark he couldn't clearly see the colors of the flag. When Metaxas opened the front door in his dressing gown and slippers, he saw it was Grazi. They headed to Metaxas's office where Grazi presented him with an envelope that he had been instructed to deliver at 3 a.m. They spoke in French, the diplomatic language at that time. I've never seen the actual ultimatum Mussolini sent to Metaxas, so I'd like to read a lightly edited version. It said in French, The Italian government has repeatedly established that during the course of the current conflict, the Greek government has taken a stance that is not only contrary to the smooth and peaceful relations of our neighboring countries, but incompatible with Greece's state of neutrality. Therefore, the Italian government has decided to ask, as a guarantee of Greece's neutrality and Italy's safety, the right to occupy with its armed forces certain strategically important areas of Greek territory and ask the Greek government to offer no resistance in the operation of occupation and to not impede the free passage of the troops charged with that task. The Italian government is asking the Greek government to issue the necessary orders to that effect immediately so that the occupation of those territories can proceed in a peaceful manner. If the Italian forces encounter any resistance, such resistance will be overcome by force of arms, and the Greek government will bear the responsibility for the consequences. Hmm. Grassi told Metaxas he had until six o'clock that morning to give his answer. Three hours. Metaxas said, Well then, it is war. The word ohi, 
is Greek for no, and it was the large one-word headline of the front-page article about Italy's demands in the Greek newspaper Greek Future. People began immediately to shout ohi through the streets. Ohi to Mussolini, to the Italians, to the Axis. Ohi. That's how October 28th became known as Ohi Day, the day the Greeks stood up against the fascists. Because it wasn't just Metaxas that stood up. Mussolini and many of his advisors, spies, and ministers truly believed the Greek people would rise up against Metaxas because they really didn't like him. But even his greatest enemies agreed that Metaxas was Greek first and did his people proud. Those he sent into exile returned to fight for Greece. Political detainees in Greek prisons volunteered. Thousands of ethnic Greeks from Egypt and Cyprus traveled to Greece to join the fight. The lines going into recruitment centers snaked around blocks. Most of the recruits would not have uniforms or even boots or proper guns, but they joined up yelling ohi in the streets. The Italian troops crossed the border from Albania into Greece a half hour before the 6 a.m. deadline. They reportedly carried silk stockings and condoms, anticipating a quick fight in a good time. Mussolini had chosen a lucky date, after all. It was the 18th anniversary of his rise to power. Mussolini intended to use his friend Hitler's methods, a blitzkrieg, a battle so fast that it would knock Greece down before she could mobilize. From that first moment, according to Lavra, Italy engaged in total war. Quote, heavy air attacks were launched against the civilian population indiscriminately, unquote. In Patras, Italian planes painted with Greek flags flew low over the homes. When people came out to cheer what they thought were Greek planes, they were strafed. 700 people died there. But the main attack was through the Albanian border, further into the Pindus Mountains that run south-southeast from Albania to central Greece. The Pindus is a treacherous mountain range, and the Albanians at least should have known better. They're made up of what Encyclopedia Britannica describes as often wild, precipitous slopes that allow few passes. The highest peak is 8,651 feet, or 2,637 meters. They're well forested with oak, fir, beech, and pine, snow-capped in the winter. Yet there were many Greek villages scattered throughout on both sides of the border. It looked grim. Greek Chief of Staff Lieutenant General Papagos said on October 28th that there was only enough ammunition available for one month of intensive fighting. A war correspondent in Albania reported that the Greek army used rickety trucks and antiquated artillery. For three days, the Italians advanced. But on November 1st, Greeks armed with bayonets pushed back advancing Italian troops and forced their way five kilometers into Albania. That's a little more than three miles. 162 prisoners were taken, including nine officers. On all fronts, the Italian advance was now being held. On November 9th, Ipsonis, who had marched for two weeks to get high into the mountains, took position. They were the elite of the military, specially chosen for height and physical strength. They wore the traditional pleated kilt of the most honored fighters in the Greek military, and saruches, the leather shoes worn by the mountain people that gave them traction on rocks and snow, and kept their feet warm with a black pom-pom at the toe that doubled as a stash for knives for fighting in close combat. According to Blitas, they quickly became one of the legends of the Albanian campaign already well-known for their fearless fighting tradition, especially in hand-to-hand -hand combat involving the bayonet. 
Because Greek forces were so small, civilians from every village nearby took up the slack. They carried supplies for the troops so the troops could fight. There were some mules, but mostly the women, children, and old folks transported everything on foot up those treacherous mountain paths. Lavra writes, food, ammunition, machine guns were dragged up by the civilian army that appeared from nowhere. On the morning of the 10th of November, the Abzonis began their chilling battle cry. I won't try to imitate it. I can't. Aera reverberated and echoed across the peaks, and like all of their opponents in the past, the Italians and Albanians were unnerved by it. Then the Abzonis attacked ferociously. Women up on the peaks rolled boulders down on top of retreating Italian troops. It was a rout. The Greeks, who had been mobilized on foot and muleback, captured several hundred Fiat trucks from the Italians. Italian tanks deliberately ran back and forth over injured Greek soldiers, and somehow the Greeks destroyed many of them. The first two tanks disappeared into well-camouflaged trenches. Most of the Greek soldiers wound up fighting with bayonets, like the Abzones, because often that's all they had. The Italians called them barbaric. Journalist David Walker recorded the Battle of November 10th. Quote, Greek peasants, men and women, stood beside the Greek army in the most critical and fantastic battle of the whole campaign. Almost no Greeks were taken prisoner, but many Italians and Albanians were. Many of them surrendered, and the Greeks were beginning to collect a stockpile of modern weapons ammunition and whatever other supplies were dropped during the retreat. This is considered the first Allied victory of the Second World War, the first Axis setback of the entire war, to quote Greeker Than Greek website. By November 14th, Greek troops had recaptured every piece of land they'd lost in the three days of the Greco-Italian War and pushed into Albanian territory. Greek reporter says, the Greek army not only repelled the Italians on the Albanian front, but also entered the neighboring country and took back territories that had belonged to Greece. The smaller Greek forces made excellent use of guerrilla tactics, just as their ancestors did during the War of Independence. They blew up bridges, bringing more troops or supplies into Albania, destroyed ammo dumps, cut Italian communications to the front, and the people from the villages helped any way they could. When Italy attacked, everyone, not just Italy, thought Greece would fall immediately. Lavra says, the Battle of Metsovo in Ipirus, which in the Italian plan was to have settled the fate of Greece, had been lost by Italy. Many of the Greek soldiers suffered frostbite and lost limbs because they weren't equipped as well as the Italian army. They didn't have proper winter gear or boots, but still they pushed back. For six more months, the Greeks held the much larger, better-equipped Italian army at bay. Italian media blamed the bad weather for the defeat and the steep, dangerous mountains. Lavra says, as if the Greek soldiers did not have to endure the same weather and the same height or poorly outfitted with antiquated weapons and no proper gear. The Italian media related it was hard to destroy an uncivilized country because there were no good targets. It didn't stop them from strafing civilians in their civilized way. But Italian planes did accidentally drop food and ammo for their troops behind Greek lines, which I expect was very much appreciated. A British general at that time by the name of Robinson said, Italy's high command was guilty of one mistake. They failed to take into account the spirit of Greece and the courage of the Greek soldier. And the entire world knew 
An article in the Jersey Journal, a Hudson County, New Jersey newspaper, printed on November 6, 1940. In spite of heavy odds in favor of the Italian army, the forces of Greece have not only checked Mussolini's troops, but they have also invaded Albania. The Bangor News of Maine on November 27, 1940, said there is no denying the moral value of the Greek defense and how much it fortifies the forces of right against might. It restores man's faith in miracles. The Times of London on November 28th reported a change of climate in Syria and Egypt. Italian troops fighting the Greeks had to keep being replenished, so there weren't enough reinforcements for the occupation of Egypt or to take the Suez Canal, giving the British army in North Africa a fighting chance. Walker, a British journal who was in Athens on Day and translated Lavra's book into English, suggests, it is possible the British army of the Mideast owed its existence to the defense of the Greeks in Albania. Egypt might well have been lost in the autumn of 1940 had the Greek prime minister accepted Mussolini's ultimatum. Metaxas died in January of 1941. His successor, General Papagos, allowed a British expeditionary force to land in Greece on March 7th, one of the greatest fears of the Axis. Hitler's plans for the Soviet invasion were put on hold when the Nazis finally jumped in to save Italy's butt and invaded Greece on April 6, 1941, wasting men and time they could have used for their main objective, which is to take over Russia, changing the progression of the war, says Greek reporter. The Greeks held on for nearly another month under Germany's relentless attack. This is why the German troops had Russian winter to contend with when they finally made their move on the USSR. Greek resistance to the Italians and later the Nazis in the battle for Greece was a turning point in the war. Lavra wrote, Seldom in history have two great powers so misjudged a small one. After so many larger, more advanced European countries had fallen to the Axis powers, Greece's fierce resistance and early successes, quote, raised the hopes of occupied Europe when they saw a small country could stop an advancing Axis army writes the Hellenic News of America. It was a modern David and Goliath story that reverberated throughout the world. American President Franklin Delano Roosevelt said, when the entire world had lost all hope, the Greek people dared to question the invincibility of the German monster, raising against it the proud spirit of freedom. Soviet dictator Joseph Stalin voiced gratitude, saying, we thank the Greek people whose resistance decided World War II. You fought unarmed and won. You gave us time to defend ourselves. Winston Churchill, tough bulldog prime minister of Great Britain, whose country had battled alone against the Axis after France fell, before the U.S. entered the war, said, If there had not been the virtue and courage of the Greeks, we do not know which the outcome of the World War II would have been. It was Churchill who blessed the Greeks with our favorite alkylade of all. Hence, we shall not say Greeks fight like heroes, but that heroes fight like Greeks. Interestingly, Adolf Hitler said, as Greece was crushed under the Nazi boot, historic justice forces me to admit that of all the enemies that stand against us, the Greek soldier above all fought with the most courage. After the war was over, Hitler's chief of staff, and there were a couple, it may have been Adolf Husinger, who reportedly said, the Greeks delayed by two or more vital months the German attack against Russia, 
If we did not have this long delay, the outcome of the war would have been different. Greek resistance continued throughout the Nazi occupation during the war. But it was Ochide and the early victories of the Greeks against the Axis that changed everything for Greeks and for Europe. In a letter to Mussolini on December 27, 1944, five months before Germany surrendered, Hitler wrote, The unfortunate initial outcome of the Battle of Greece encouraged the British to attack successfully in Libya. Greek reporter reminds us if Greece hadn't said no, it's likely the consequences for Greece and the world would have been far more devastating. So to the British commenter on my Why are the Parthenon Marbles in the British Museum post, who peevishly reminded me that Britain had helped the Greeks during the War of Independence, I say, paid you back. Return the marbles now. I had so much more material to share. There are so many stories and details about this amazing episode in world history and the history of the war, and it should be taught in schools because Greece made a difference in the outcome of the war despite its small size and lack of weapons and manpower. It inspired the world in 1940, and it should inspire us now. So join proud Greeks in celebrating Day. In Greece, everyone's in the streets parading and laying wreaths at the statues of war heroes in every town. Wherever you are, raise the Greek flag on October 28th. And remember the men and women who threw themselves in the path of the powerful Italian army rather than lie down for fascism. We'll close with the motto of the Washington Ojide Foundation, whose purpose is to educate the public and policymakers about Greece's role in the fight against fascism during the World War. Many know Greece created democracy, but few knew that Greece also saved it. Zito Ialas, Axios. Thanks for listening. Greek Like Me is a Stealth Greek production. This episode was researched, written, and narrated by me, your host, Pamela Degudis Wood. Our producer, photographer, and post-production editor is Douglas John. Special thanks to Eduardo Gill for helping chase down elusive facts and for feeding me. Visit our website at stealthgreek.com for resources, photos, links, and more. Please rate, like, and subscribe. It helps us get noticed so we can keep making content about Greeks and Greek culture. Find Greek Like Me on Facebook or on Instagram at Greek underscore like underscore me. See you next time. Yes, <laughs> <laughs>